The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're going to be doing the Mosaic Covenant. It should say part two instead of part three. I, <clears throat> I corrected it this morning. It was part one. I can't get it right. Uh, but we are on part two of our study, and this is a a series of the covenants that we're doing, starting with the Noahic, we did the Abrahamic, now we're in the Mosaic. And this is largely going to be a review. It's been two weeks since we've looked at this together, and I just want to quiz you a little bit to see what you remember, and, and we will advance some from what we did the last time. We talked about the significance of the Mosaic Covenant, meaning how much impact it has on the rest of the canon of Scripture. We quoted Paul House, I'm going to read that quote again, I don't have it up on the screen, but he just says, there's no way to describe adequately the canonical implications of Exodus 19 through 24. That's what spells out the Mosaic Covenant. Everyone from Moses to Jeremiah to Jesus to Peter and every other biblical writer who has anything to say about covenant, morality, relationship to God reflects directly or indirectly upon this passage. So it is a very crucial point in God's redemptive plan. He's making this covenant with the nation of Israel, having already started to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham and having already made Abraham's descendants into a great nation. Now he's entering into covenant relationship with them. We talked about the setting of the Mosaic covenant as being after God's redemption of Israel, his redeeming them from Egyptian bondage and his guidance to Sinai and how that demonstrated both his choice of Israel, they did nothing to merit this special relationship with God, and his love and care for them as he brought them down to Sinai through a very different, difficult path. First, he had to get them across the Red Sea as the Egyptian army had them pinned against the sea, and then he had to bring them through a place where there was very little food or water available, and he supernaturally provided for them in that way, all as a demonstration of his love. And we made that point of the context there because the Mosaic Covenant was never intended to be the means of salvation, uh, the means of gaining favor with God. God already chose Israel. He already uh, made them his people. He set his love on them. And then he did these things for them to bring them down into Sinai. And what the covenant did was to give Israel the means by which they could demonstrate their love for God. It's not unlike our relationship to God through Christ. We don't do things, we can't do things, we can't do works to earn favor with God. We do them because of what God has already done for us. We do them because he's already demonstrated his love towards us. He's already saved us and redeemed us. And we obey his commands out of gratitude and love for what he's already done for us. What was the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant? Why did God enter into this relationship with the nation of Israel? I'm cheating. I have notes. That's, that's, yeah, that's one of the disadvantages of handing out slides ahead of time, but, <laughs> but it's not totally a bad thing. So I appreciate your candor. Kathleen, go ahead and tell us. Um, he, he set up the treaty that they were to have with him um, to please him. And there were several things to set them apart from the other nations. That's so right. They, as a nation, could be a witness to him as being really the God. Um, 
It was to keep protect them from falling into idolatrous practices around them. I can go on, but I guess that's good, right? That is good. Uh, we're going to talk about the form, which you, you started to talk about, the form of the covenant. What was it? What was the form of the Mosaic Covenant? I'm going to, I'm going to ask somebody besides Kathleen. That's, that's real baffle. I don't know, whatever Denise said. Okay. You're very close. Suzerain, which is another name for a king, Suzerain Vassal Treaty. So it was a form that the people were already familiar with. Uh, in those times, if a king conquered a certain nation, he entered into a treaty. He spelled out the conditions of that treaty, and the treaty cons uh, included both things that they were responsible to do to treat him properly as their new master, but also he had responsibilities towards them to watch over them, to protect them, to care for them. So uh, as far as the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, it was to set Israel apart as God's own possession. As Kathleen said, it was also that setting apart was to make them his witness nation to the other nations that he was the true God. He also made them a kingdom of priests in the sense not just a kingdom with priests, even though they had priests for sure, they were a kingdom of priests as a people, as a nation, because they mediated God's revelation to the rest of the nations. As they were obedient to obey what God commanded them to do, God would bless them and the other nations would recognize that their God was the true God. That was the way it was supposed to work. Now, there was a flip side to that. Well, I don't want to get into that. Let me hold off on that just a minute. Uh, so, God's own possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Again, that has to do with their being set apart as God's own people. The former Mosaic Covenant, we already said, was a suzerain vassal treaty. Uh, we're going to talk about this more when we get to the book of Deuteronomy because that whole book is like a covenant document. It's really just a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant with the new generation because the first generation had died out in the wilderness. But it's set up, the structure of it is the same as Exodus 19 through 24, and we've talked about this already. First, we had the <clears throat> historical prologue in verses one through four of Exodus 19, it's really just reviewing what has happened up to this point, a very compact review as they come to Sinai. Let me read that for you in verses one through four. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, remember that was the last city they were in before they came to Sinai, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. There Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So it's really just reviewing the setting and how they got to the mountain. It doesn't go all the way back. Well, in a sense, it does go all the way back when they came out of Egypt. But it's a very compact review of how they got to where they are. Then there's the preamble, which is verses 5 and 6. If indeed you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Again, very compact, but like an executive summary of all that God is uh, going to spell out for them that defines the relationship between himself and these people. 
in verses chapter 20, verse 3, all the way through 23, 19, we have stipulations of the covenant. And those include both the general and broader stipulations like the Ten Commandments and then also the case law, the application of those Ten Commandments to specific situations that they would have to deal with between themselves and God and between just themselves. There's a provision for reading the covenant, which was something they would do regularly just to remind the people again what their obligations were and what God's obligations toward them were. And that's in 24, 4 to 8. And then there's the promise of blessings and curses. Blessings if they were obedient to God and he would do all these things for them, both uh, agriculturally and militarily, I guess, as, as far as being at peace with the other nations, but also curses if they were disobedient. And remember, we look, we've looked at Leviticus 26. It's a really good summary of those blessings and curses. We're going to look at it a little, again here in just a minute. But the book of Deuteronomy goes into further detail, particularly in chapter 28, of spelling out what the, the blessings were and what the curses were, with the ultimate curse being what? Being kicked out of the land. Uh, God would give them opportunities to repent, and he would kind of increase the pressure on, as he did that. That's spelled out in Leviticus 26. But ultimately, if they refused to uh, be faithful to the covenant, God would take them out of the land. And I'm going to talk about this more when we get to Deuteronomy as well. I think it becomes pretty clear that that's what's going to happen even before they enter the land. I think they still had responsibility. But God teaches them a song as early as Deuteronomy 32, before they even go into the land, that they're going to rebel against him. And he also <coughs> anticipates that they're going to do that and that he's going to restore them. And of course, that's picked up by the latter prophets quite a bit. Every latter prophet virtually has some promise of restoration, even though Israel has been very unfaithful through their history. All right, so we've also talked about this question some. I think it's worth repeating, and again, I, I want to help us maybe to see the Mosaic Covenant in a different light than what you've seen it before. Is the Mosaic Covenant conditional upon Israel's disobedience? You know, I, I can ask that question often. I would say it's not a trick question. This one's a little bit of a trick question. What would you say, Kathleen? Okay, that's a very good answer. So certainly the blessings or the curses are conditional upon either their obedience or disobedience. How about the covenant itself? After all, it says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Let's say they don't do that. Are they then not going to be his treasured possession and the holy people? Isaiah. They'll be like set aside for time, but then they'll be he okay. Won't totally cut them off. Okay. He won't totally cut them off. Ultimately, he's going to make them uh, a holy nation. They haven't really proved to be that so far in their history, but that's what the new covenant is all about. It's not a brand new covenant. It's different for sure, and there's an enablement there that wasn't there before. But the new covenant, in essence, is going to give them the ability to be faithful and be the witness nation that was laid out for them in the Mosaic covenant. So I sent this article to you by Dr. Barrick early on in our study. I'm going to quote from it again here. 
and and he acknowledges that there is conditionality to the covenant on one sense in one sense but there's also divine certainty both in the mosaic covenant and every covenant that we're looking at it's true that the mosaic covenant was the most conditional of all the biblical covenants one of the reasons for that is because it's the longest it's the one that spells out everything that they were to do their calendar what they could eat what they could wear I mean, it's a pretty detailed covenant, especially as you look at the book of Deuteronomy. Of all the covenants, it dealt specifically with how the people of God should live. The fulfillment of the promises and blessings of any of the covenants for any particular individual or generation, and I think he's including the Abrahamic covenant there, was dependent upon their obedience to God's revelation. So there's always some conditionality. And the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is often the covenants are classified as either unconditional or conditional. I don't think that's the best way to think about them. I think in every one there was, and this is the way it is through the whole Bible really, there's human responsibility on the one side to do certain things, to be obedient. There's also divine certainty on the other. Disobedience uh, annulled the blessings of God for that individual generation in his, her, its own time. But disobedience did not invalidate the con unconditional terms of the covenant. Um, again, I, it seems to me that oftentimes the Mosaic covenant is seen as conditional, as broken, and done away with. And I just don't think that's a, the right way to think about it. Here's another guy, uh, John Walton, wrote a book called Covenant, God's Purpose, God's Plan. He says, in the end, however, all that's in question is whether God will be revealed through Israel's faithful reflection of him or whether he will reveal himself through his discipline of Israel's unfaithfulness. And I would argue that's what he's done so far uh, for the most part. There certainly were times where Israel was more faithful and more obedient and they were blessed accordingly, particularly during Solomon's reign, but it was short-lived. And most of Israel's history, as we see in the Old Testament, is a history of unfaithfulness. God's self-revelation will be accomplished through Israel one way or another. He's already done it through his disciplining of them, just as he said he would before they ever entered the Promised Land. Uh, he will also do it one day in the future through the New Covenant and through the enablement for them to be obedient in a way they've never had. And, the, and he'll fulfill all those blessings that he's talked about in all this revelation that we're looking at. You see God in the fact that Israel still is. I mean, I think that speaks to the world, whether they want to admit it or not, that such a small, tiny little nation is still not only in the news every day, but they still are. Exactly. I it's a very good point. The fact that they are so distinct, they still exist as a people, they're all over the world. Uh, they still have a very close connection with this land that God has given them. God has preserved them even in their unbelief. That's in the Old Testament. And like Pat said, we see that in the present day. So uh, it's a very good point. Matt, uh, Frank, does that have to do with the Abrahamic covenant? So the Mosaic covenant is actually, we're going to talk about this more next week. It's the means by which the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are fulfilled. And all of these covenants work together to unfold the plan of God. We're going to see when we get to the Davidic covenant, 
that the, the promised line of David would never lack a man to sit upon the throne, and he was to lead them in keeping the Mosaic Covenant. So these are all related, and I hope that's one of the main objectives of our study, too, is for, to help you see those connections. They, didn't all, they weren't all revealed at the same time, but as God reveals them through the Old Testament period, they, they provide this backbone, this structure of his relationship with Israel and his revelation for what they would do and be. All right, we talked about the sign of a couple of different covenants. What was the sign of the Noahic covenant? You could say it. Rainbow. Linda was telling me that while they were on their cruise that they saw a rainbow. And to me, it's fascinating to see that and to think about the fact that there was a time where God judged the world. I mean, he completely flooded the entire earth. But the rainbow and the promise of the rainbow is that he will not do that again. So even though we have all this rain out here, we know that God is not going to destroy the world by flood. We know that there's been a lot of local floods since then, but never will the world be destroyed by water again. What about the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. This was something that they were supposed to do for the child at eight days old. They circumcised him, and it was a means of well, it was obedience to what God commanded, and it brought that child into the covenant, uh, into the Abrahamic covenant. What about, what's the sign of the Mosaic covenant? It's the Sabbath. So <clears throat> we said the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision, and it was just the means by which it was a reminder that God was multiplying the nation, um, that that each child was responsible to be circumcised, to be part of this covenant community. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant is Sabbath observance. And I want us to read a little bit about that in Exodus 31, beginning in verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. And you'll remember there's an incident in Numbers, I believe it is, where uh, there's a guy out gathering sticks on the Sabbath. He's just going to make a fire, maybe for heat, maybe for cooking. And they see him doing it, and they arrest him, in essence, and bring him in and they take the case to the Lord and ask him what's to be done with this fella and the Lord says execute him he's violated the Sabbath he's broken covenant uh, with God and that was the that was the penalty just as failing to circumcise a baby to bring them into the Abrahamic covenant was punishable by death so was the uh, breaking of the Sabbath Everyone who profanes it, profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there's a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's just 
Remember the phrase is Beirit Olam. It's an everlasting covenant, the same way that that phrase is applied to the other covenants that we're looking at. It's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So going all the way back to creation, even though there was no command at creation to observe the Sabbath day, now there is one, and, and God's own activity in making the world in six days and resting on the seventh is the example from which the Sabbath is established. As we said, just as failing to circumcise was an offense worthy of death, so was Sabbath breaking. In both cases, it's an action of rebellion. I mean, that guy that was out there gathering sticks, he knew he wasn't supposed to do that. It had been made clear through the law. He did it anyway. Uh, and God punishes that kind of rebellion, that kind of covenant treachery. Sabbath observance is described as an everlasting covenant between God and Israel, implying, I would say, uh, making clear the everlasting nature of the Mosaic covenant. And I want us to uh, read a couple more passages that I think affirm that. And again, that's not what you'll hear most of the time. They, most people would say that the Mosaic Covenant is done away with. Uh, I, I don't want to confuse us. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant today. That's been made very clear. But we're not party to any of the covenants that are made between God and Israel. But here's what it says in Leviticus uh, 24. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. This is in the context of instructions for the priest and their preparation of the showbread each week for the table in the tabernacle. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. Again, this is the table in the tabernacle. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It's an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. Now, I want to read another reference in Isaiah chapter 24. And I want to talk a little bit about the outline of Isaiah as a book. You'll recall that uh, the first 12 chapters are really dealing with Judah and Jerusalem. And there are oracles concerning Judah and Jerusalem, both their sin and their future. In chapters 13 through 23, there's prophecies against all the other nations. And then we come to chapter 24, and the, the prophecies concerning the nations, and particularly their judgment, is kind of summed up in chapter 24. And it's talked about in the sense of a, a universal judgment of the whole earth. We're looking at chapter 24, verse 5 in particular, but I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through 6. Again, this is a, a prediction of God's coming judgment against the world. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its service, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like the master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. I think the point there is that everybody will be on the same desperate and equal footing. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. 
The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, they violated statutes, they broke the everlasting covenant. Now, you can make an argument for it being things other than the Mosaic covenant. I think that's what he's talking about, particularly with the mention of uh, statutes and, and laws. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. So let's talk again about the blessings and curses associated with the covenant. Remember Leviticus 26 is just a compact chapter that lays this out. It gets more detail in Deuteronomy 28. We start out in Leviticus 26 with fundamentals of the law. Uh, it's really a summary of what God has already laid out back in the stipulation sections 20 through 23 of Exodus. Leviticus 26, 1 and 2. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. What's that sound like? Okay, it's idolatry. What back in Exodus 20 sounds the same? Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, right? You should not make any uh, idols or any images. Why? For I am the Lord your God. He's just requiring singularity of worship. He's the only true God, and therefore they were not to do, even though that was their history, right? They've very much been exposed to idolatry, particularly during their time in Egypt. So they were to, be, they were to worship God and God alone. How were they to do that? You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So, of course, keeping the Sabbaths was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, but also the worship system was laid out in the book of Exodus as well and how they were to approach Exodus and Leviticus, actually, how they were to approach the Lord through sacrifice. All right? So if they did those things... There would be blessings for obedience. They would be prosperous, agriculturally prosperous. They would have more food than they could eat, in essence. Their animals would reproduce without mishap. They would have peace from the surrounding nations. In fact, they would have power over those nations. Even though they might be smaller than the nations, they would be uh, more powerful and, and be able to put those other nations to flight. They themselves would uh, be fruitful and multiply, and they would again have provision in the sense of the, the crop wouldn't run out until it was time to gather the new crops in. Most importantly, perhaps, would be God's presence among them. He would be their God, and they would be his people. All those were promises of blessing for obedience to the covenant stipulations. The flip side of that would be curses for disobedience, and they very much are the opposite of what the blessings would be. Uh, rather than being healthy and prosperous, they would be debilitated. They would be sickly. Uh, they would die. They would suffer defeat at the hand of their enemies. God would not send rain upon the land so that their crops would not produce uh, as they would if they were being obedient. They would be devastated by wild beasts, which were a real threat in that land in that day. They would be devastated by siege to the degree 
it's hard to think about this, they would eat their own. This is what Leviticus 26, 29 says. Further, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you shall eat. I mean, I doubt that any of us have been in that kind of hunger situation, but that happens when that's all that's left. And then finally, as we talked about, the ultimate punishment for disobedience would be being cast out of the land, deportation. But even Leviticus 26 ends with a promise of restoration. And as I read this, I want you to think about the covenants that are mentioned in this passage. <clears throat> this, after he's laid out all these covenant curses and even being expelled from the land, this is what he says in verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my, also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with whom? Abraham. It's a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant that was confirmed with Isaac and Jacob. Remember my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. We've talked about how important the land is as the stage upon which these blessings of God are worked out. For the land shall be abandoned by them, and they shall make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. So remember, they were supposed to give the uh, land a Sabbath rest every seven years. And in fact, they, they hadn't done that, or they don't do that over the course of time. So God takes them into exile for a period of 70 years, and that makes up for, it gives the land rest during that period, and it makes up for that 490-year period where they didn't allow the land to have its rest. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. So it seems, I mean, as you read the different passages like this, on the one hand, Israel certainly broke covenant with God, but he doesn't break his covenant with them. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors. Which covenant is this? So that's my question. Let, let me keep reading, and I think it will become more clear. I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. Sounds Abrahamic to me, but I know you're going to say Mosaic. I am going to say Mosaic because... Abraham is not the one that came out of Egypt, right? It was the nation that came from Abraham's loins, to be sure. Uh, and he says, When I brought out of the land of Egypt and the side of the nations that I might be their God, I am the Lord. I think he's talking there about the covenant he makes with the nation after he brings them out of Egypt and down to Sinai. So you've got both of them mentioned in this passage. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. So I, 
To me, it's really important to see in Leviticus 26, and we'll see it when we get to Deuteronomy as well, that this uh, falling away by the nation of Israel is anticipated even before they get to the Holy Land. And the rest of the Old Testament just plays that out. Sure enough, they do end up falling away, rebelling, rebelling against God. Uh, God uses the prophets to try to call them back to covenant faithfulness. They don't listen, and so they're taken out of the land. In fact, that's what this slide is about. Later commentary on the Mosaic Covenant in Scripture. After the book of Deuteronomy in which the Mosaic Covenant is renewed with a new generation of Israelites, we'll look at that in a couple of weeks, much of the remainder of the Old Testament is largely a commentary on Israel's lack of fidelity to the covenant that God made with her, first at Sinai and then in the plains of Moab to the next generation. The historical books... We're talking uh, Joshua through Esther here to provide the record of this infidelity. Now, the best way to, to know about all that infidelity is to read those books. We're not going to do that this morning, but I want to read uh, just a couple of examples for you so you can get a feel for it. And this is actually in the book of Kings, 1 Kings 2, 1 through 3. This is part of David's charge to Solomon. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth, meaning I'm going to die. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, that's not really talking about infidelity, but that is the charge that David passes on to Solomon. Um, he knew that that was important. But as you read, as you continue to read through the kings, and the kings had a big impact because they're the ones who led the people either in keeping covenant or not. As you read through the rest of the kings, who is the standard by which they're measured? It's David. And what, what is the standard? What did David do that they were supposed to do as well? Have a heart devoted to God. Have a heart devoted to God, and how did that show itself? Obedience. Obedience, obedience to the covenant. So let's read a couple of examples of that. Um, this was 2 Kings 16, verses 2 and 3, and this is talking about Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. So this was a king that wasn't keeping covenant with God. He wasn't leading the people to do it. He was actually following what the nations around him did. That's a negative example. We get to 2 Kings 22 and we hear about Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth. And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. That's just... One negative example, one positive example, but that was the history of Israel. They had a lot more bad kings than good, a lot more kings that failed to keep covenant than kept covenant. 
and that's the record we have in the historical books. We also see a number of the Psalms lament Israel's unfaithfulness. We read one of those, I think it was two weeks ago, Psalm 106. I just want to read a section of that again so you can hear the same unfaithfulness that we're talking about. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him. You remember that incident with the golden calf? God was ready to wipe them out and start over. To turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, the promised land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness. He would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. All that was talked about in Leviticus 26. They joined themselves unto Bel Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed, and so the plague was stayed. That's actually another covenant. We call it the priestly covenant. It's in Numbers 25. We'll look at it in a few weeks. It was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account. Because they were rebellious against his spirit, against the Lord's spirit, he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices. It was supposed to be exactly the opposite. They were supposed to be set apart as holy and keep God's covenant commands and the other nations be drawn to them. Instead, they were influenced by the nations. Serve their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. The blood sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Remember, the promise was that Israel would be powerful over the nations if they had been obedient. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. What time period is he talking about there as far as his delivering them? It says many times he would deliver them. He's talking about the period of the judges where they would end up, because of their sin, coming under, subject to another people, and they would be oppressed. They would cry out. The Lord would hear them. He would send a judge to deliver them, and then the cycle would start all over again. <clears throat> He remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. So even Psalm 106 is a prayer, a petition for the restoration of Israel. Finally, we have the latter prophets who are continually calling Israel to repent, Israel and Judah, 
to repent of their covenant unfaithfulness and return to their God, but they won't do it. And again, the best way to, to see that is to read through the latter prophets over time. I'm not saying you need to do that in one sitting, but I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Joel 2, 12 through 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, genuine repentance, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord God, the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Zechariah 1.4, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. So he's saying, don't follow the example of your ancestors. Listen, repent, return. And when he says return, he's talking about returning to loyalty to God and to covenant faithfulness. Finally, Malachi 3, 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So that's what we see all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament. But even as we get to the New Testament, the initial part of Jesus' ministry is to uh, call the people back to faithfulness to, to the covenant. Even John the Baptist before that, when he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's talking about repenting of their rebellion against God and his covenant and coming back to obedience. We talked about this when we looked at the life of Christ, but the theme passage in uh, Christ's Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I think as he goes on to explain the law in this sermon, he's clarifying what the true intent of the law is and what they were responsible for when they obeyed the law. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And then he emphasized the importance of obedience to the law. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Of course, that was a real shock to the people because they were considered the most righteous people of their generation. And Christ is saying, no, they don't have it right. Uh, I'm about to tell you in contrast what they say or what you've heard that was said with what my own teaching is. And he really, <clears throat> I think he's clarifying that the true intent of the law all along was to condition the heart towards obedience to God. Yes, absolutely. And, and they were being misled by the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which was very much external and very much uh, a created righteousness in the sense that they were adding all these stipulations on top of the Word of God. They had substituted the Word of God for the teaching of men. <coughs> okay, where we want to finish today is, if you remember, I think it was the last time we met, uh, I talked about this route from Egypt down to Mount Sinai. 
And in God's providence, when Bev and I were in Kansas City last weekend, Michael, who is Rachel's fiance, uh, his father has a real passion for the location of Mount Sinai, and it's in a different place from the one that I showed you. Now, I'm not going to say for sure which one is which, and I don't think our faith depends on knowing where Mount Sinai is. We know from the scripture that God delivered them. He took them through these various cities. He provided for them in the wilderness. All that's clear. And whichever view you take of the route of the Exodus and the location of Mount Sinai, you can believe that. But we showed it being kind of uh, down this way, crossing the Red Sea on the left-hand finger of the Red Sea, if you will, a possible location of Mara, where Moses turned the bitter waters into sweet. Even here, there's question marks on the location of these cities. Elim would be the next place where the oasis and the 12 springs of water were. They went from there uh, eventually down to the city of Rephidim, where the Amalekites came against them and where God also provided quail and manna in the desert. Um, and where Moses also provided water from the rock. And then finally down to what we call the traditional location of Mount Sinai. So this other uh, proposal, and again, I, I need to study it out more myself. I just wanted to let you know about it because there's some really interesting things about it, I think. And I think you can make a uh, pretty compelling case for a different route. So... <clears throat> Again, they would have crossed above uh, the, the left finger of the Red Sea and probably gathered at a place called Sukkoth because there was a wide area there. But you can see this route and the areas that indicate they, they were more north and at a certain point, Etham on this map, they turned and gathered at a place called Nueva which is in the Sinai Peninsula, and it's a very large piece of flat land uh, right there at the sea. And it, as you can see here, it's, it's a large body of water where they are crossing, which would make sense in the, because God had opened up the sea for the Israelites to pass through and the Egyptians to be destroyed. But then they, they were on the east side when they came to these other cities of, for example, Elim, where there's still an oasis today. And that's what makes this a little more compelling case, is that there's still this evidence today of what we see described in the biblical account. From Elim, they went to Rephidim. There's a rock there that has been split, and it has water erosion that has flowed down out of that rock. And then you can see the location there for Sinai on the right-hand side, uh, the top of that mountain is actually blackened. And, of course, the idea there would be that when God came down in fire and lightning, then uh, it permanently blackened the mountain. The other thing that makes it compelling to me, and again, I, I haven't heard anybody make a case for the traditional site. I always just accepted it because I'd not heard this alternative. And that's, I'm still in between right now. But you see that the on the east side of what's called the Gulf of Aqaba is the land of Midian. And that's where God called, called Moses from the burning bush. And he told them, as he was commissioning him to be the leader to bring them out of Egyptian bondage, this will be a sign to you that you'll come to this mountain and worship here. So I think there's a case to be made. Everybody seems to agree that Midian has always been 
where it is described as on this map. So what I want to do now to close is to show you a very brief video that gives you some uh, pictures. That, this is actually in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And as you can imagine, it's not easy for people to get to. But there are uh, people that have gone there. They've taken video. They've even seen altars at the base of this mountain that they're identifying as Mount Sinai, one that Moses would have built, have built and this is described in the text, and even the golden calf altar is a separate altar. So I'm really just doing this to kind of whet your appetite for some further study on this in particular. Uh, Michael's father, whose name is Ken, has a real passion for this. He gave me a flash drive that has all this information on it. Uh, I haven't had a chance to work through all of it, but he also talked to us while we were there for about two hours. Uh, he said that he came to this very skeptically originally, but he's convinced of it now. I just want to let you know that there is another proposal for this route, and we'll look at the video now and uh, get some more detail on that. So if you wanted to, if you want to go online, uh, I want to say if you if you go to YouTube and put in the the real Mount Sinai or the Mountain of God, you You'll see several videos like this that are making the case. Again, I think if you sum it up, they've found evidence today of some of these things like the oasis in Elim, the whales that were there, uh, the fact that it is in Midian, the fact that the top of this mountain is blackened. I don't know how well you could see the two altars, but there was an altar for the golden calf that's fenced out now and also an altar that Moses made. And I don't know if there's that what they will say the people that believe in this theory is that there's not that kind of evidence on the other route i don't know I've, I've not heard anybody make a case for the other route i just always accepted it so to me it was just interesting the fact that we're studying this part of the biblical uh, history right now uh, to to show you that are there any questions about anything we covered today I may end up showing you some more of that information that we looked at at the end, just depending on when I get through it. All right. Remember, uh, FOF is tonight, and caroling next Sunday evening. We'll gather at the uh, Vols at 530. All right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time we've had together this morning. We uh, we think about all that you did in bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt and down to Mount Sinai, just tremendous displays of your power and the way that you brought them up to the promised land and the way that you disciplined them even as they were trekking through the wilderness. But we also are so grateful for your covenant faithfulness to them despite their unfaithfulness and the way that you are continuing to work out your plan through time uh, through this nation, through this witness nation. We recognize that we're not part of the nation of Israel, but we get some of the blessings that will eventually come to them. We get them ahead of time through Christ and through what he's done to pay the price of our sins and uh, to grant us as Gentiles salvation. So we're extremely grateful for that. We're extremely grateful for this time of year where we reflect on the coming of Christ as a baby boy taking on human flesh and I pray that it will be a, a spiritually refreshing season for us as we end another year and start a new one uh, still being faithful to serve you in all areas of our lives 
and at the same time anticipating Christ's return. So we thank you for the time this morning. We pray that you'd go with us and strengthen us, especially to tame our tongues, to bridle our tongues, uh, and also just to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.